Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Tom Barrett. I'm one of the ministers here at All Saints. And if you'd like to flick back to page 1299, we're going to be um, having a look at Hosea 13 this morning. God's judgment is not what you'd call a really popular topic. We had our church weekend away a few weeks ago, and if we had advertised, come for the church weekend away for extended teaching on God's judgment, I think we would have struggled to get registrations. I knew a guy who was a ministry trainee at a previous church of mine, and he says that probably his most excruciating experience in ministry was a week when he was a trainee. It was a Sunday morning. We had lots of visitors coming for the um, baptism of a baby. And he had been assigned to preach on the chapter in Genesis, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) That was in about 2007, and I I heard him talk about it recently. I think he's still got the scars. (laughs) God's judgment is not a popular topic. And I think many of us are pretty inclined to just want to push it to one side. To focus on those Bible verses that say God is love and nice things like that and to push his judgment out of view. Because we know that focusing on God's judgment is uncomfortable. And we feel that actually focusing on God's judgment might be dangerous for us. I think we worry that if we look face on at God's judgment, we might end up hating God. But today, as we look at Hosea 13, I want us to venture into that dangerous territory. I want us to look squarely at God's judgment and examine it closely. And my hope and my prayer is that as we do this carefully, it won't make us hate God, but it will make us hate our sin and flee from it. That's what I'm hoping. In this series, we've been listening into what the prophet Hosea was saying to the people of ancient Israel in around 760 to 720 BC. They were God's chosen people, but as they drifted away from God, their nation had ended up split in two, the uh, northern and southern kingdoms. And Hosea 13 is addressed to Ephraim. They were the largest and the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom. They kind of represented the northern kingdom as a whole. And Samaria, which is mentioned in verse 13, was their capital city. God had given the prophet Hosea a message for them, a message of warning. I've discovered that every second page of my sermon is upside down, so just bear with me. (laughs) If the whole sermon is out of order, you'll just have to piece it back together in your mind. These people lived in anxious times. Around them, powerful empires were rising and competing with each other. There were no international treaties about respecting the sovereignty of other nations. If you lived on some attractive territory and you didn't have enough military strength, then you would get conquered. That's how it went. You could try and stave it off by sending money or pledging allegiance to your stronger neighbour. But if that didn't work out, they would send in their army besiege your cities, burn your houses, terrorise your population and plunder your resources. The superpower in Hosea's time was the Assyrian Empire. They were a military giant 
and they'd already begun to invade some of Israel's territory and demand money to not go further. Where are the people of God going to turn for security and survival in anxious times like these? As we explore the answers to that question, it's going to prompt us to ask some questions of ourselves. Where do we turn for security and survival in our anxious times? Now, a few hundred years earlier, when Israel had felt under threat, they had looked around at the stronger nations around them. They'd done some competitor analysis and they'd worked out, aha, that's what they've got, which we need. And they called out to God, give us a king like the other nations. The only problem was that they had a king already. The Lord God was their king. But they insisted, we want a king like the other nations. And so God gave them one. If you look at Hosea 13 verse 10, the Lord says, Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? In Hosea's time, none of the kings of Israel were doing a good job of standing up to Assyrian aggression. They were flipping and flapping. They were appeasing the Assyrians one minute, rebelling against them the next minute, flirting with alliances with Egypt. The kings of Israel were turning over quickly, often amongst intrigue and murder. Israel had looked to the leadership structures of other nations, but it had let them down. The parents in the room know that if you give your children exactly what they ask for every time, it will lead to their downfall, won't it? When your kids are little, it's your job as a parent just to say a straight no and to keep them from these dumb decisions. But as they grow up, you have to start giving them the dignity of making their own decisions and experiencing the consequences. And that is a big part of the biblical picture of God's judgment. A big part of God's judgment is actually respecting the dignity of human decisions and giving people what they want. The Israelites had the creator of the universe as their king. He was going to lead them and guide them and protect them and give them victory. But instead they wanted a human king like the other nations. God gave them what they asked for. And that was an act of judgment. As Christians, you and I should be alert to this pattern of looking to the leadership structures of the outside world for our security and survival in anxious times. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading secular leadership books and taking on their wisdom if we filter it through the scriptures. But I think there's a great danger for Christians in the Western world to say, what the church really needs is a great CEO. We need an exceptional senior minister or an archbishop or a platform speaker to really get Christianity back on a winning streak. The older generation would be tempted to say, give us another Billy Graham. Younger generations might say, give us a Christian version of Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Richard Branson. That's what we need. But relying on such a leader, real or imagined, to provide security and survival for God's people is a mistake. It's a mistake we should watch out for. 
But it wasn't only the leadership and arrangements of other nations that Israel turned to. It was also their spiritual powers. In the ancient Near East, the standard way you would worship any god was by using a statue, an idol, which represented the god, usually as some form of animal. But the Lord had told his people way, way back that they could not worship him that way. He's not just one more local deity. He's the creator of heaven and earth. You can't represent him as an animal. But the people of Israel again and again wanted idols like the other nations had. At its best, this was a misguided way of worshipping the Lord. At its worst, it meant they were worshipping another god altogether. The best known alternative god was called Baal Hadad, the Canaanite storm god. He was represented as a bull or a calf. He'd be worshipped by bowing down before this calf statue. As the god of fertility, he would sometimes be worshipped by having sex with a temple prostitute. And if you were worried that Baal was really grumpy and you wanted to cheer him up, you would offer a child sacrifice. Look at Hosea 13 from the middle of verse 1. Ephraim became guilty of Baal worship and died. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them with the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. One writer points out that they were meant to kiss other people and to offer animals as sacrifices, but instead they're doing the opposite. They're kissing animal statues and they're sacrificing humans. How did they get caught up in all this? Remember they lived in anxious times. They were desperately looking for security and survival. They weren't sure if the Lord would provide for them and so they took some of their business to his competitors. It's important to notice they didn't just say, oh, we're not going to worship the Lord anymore, we'll worship Baal instead. No, they just added some Baal worship on the side. And if the Lord was just one more local God like all the others, he wouldn't mind. But he's not. He's the one true and living God. If we divide our worship between him and other things, we're not giving him the treatment he's worthy of. And we're cutting ourselves off from his blessing and protection. Now, I don't think any of you here are in danger of sacrificing your children to Baal Hadad. But there is always the danger of putting other things at the same level as the Lord God. Today, perhaps those other gods are a bit more subtle. Are you just as committed to free market capitalism as you are to the Lord? Are you just as committed to some political party or movement as you are to the Lord? Are you just as committed to your career aspirations as you are to the Lord? When you're looking for a sense of security in anxious times, where does your mind go first? Maybe to the property that you own, which is a secure asset. Maybe to the top-level health insurance that you're paying for. Maybe to the skills you possess, which you're confident will always be in demand by the market. Maybe your mind goes to your family relationships, your romantic partner, the network of friends you belong to. 
It's possible for any of those things to end up on the top shelf with God. But they don't belong there. We should watch out. Ancient Israel were facing God's judgment because in their anxious times they'd turned to kings, they'd turned to idols, they had not turned to the Lord. This is not just foolish, this is heartbreaking. Look at verse 9 of our chapter. It says, You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. There was one who could actually provide the leadership and guidance and wisdom that they needed. There was one who had a track record of giving them good things, protecting them from their enemies, giving them fertility in their fields and in their households. In verse 4 he says, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. In verse 5 he says, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. The Lord God is the mighty God who can defeat every enemy. The Lord God is the generous God who's committed himself to them as their helper. But when the going got tough, they didn't turn to him. They pushed him to the side. Why is it that they've reached this point? What has led to this terrible situation? Hosea gives us an explanation that should worry us. Read from verse 6, where the Lord says through Hosea, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. You know what led them to this point of faithlessness? Comfort. Prosperity. Safety. There had been a time when they'd been living securely in a land living, uh, flowing with milk and honey, safe from their enemies. If you put it in today's terms, their economy was good, the mortgages were paid off, they had holiday houses, all of the video streaming services they wanted, restaurant dinners every night. But instead of saying, look how good the Lord has been to us, they ended up saying, look at all we've achieved for ourselves. When they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot the Lord. The Bible shows us that prosperity is a spiritually dangerous place to be. And let's be clear, it's a place where many, many of us are. North Epping on average is a very prosperous part of a very prosperous country. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread. And I wonder if when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that line feels a bit irrelevant to you. If you've got your daily bread sitting on the kitchen bench at home and plenty of other food in the pantry. Do you feel that? But praying that line is an incredibly important spiritual discipline. Making that request to God is an acknowledgement of where our daily bread comes from. It stops us from becoming proud and forgetting the Lord. But let me recognise that some of you here may feel that that prosperity label really does not fit you at all. 
Maybe rises in interest rates have made your situation precarious. Maybe ridiculous property prices in this city make you feel anxious about your ability to put any kind of roof over your head, let alone purchase a long-term home. And I don't want to romanticise financial stress, but let me say that can be a spiritually healthy place to be. It can be an antidote to self-reliance. It can be a situation which drives you to the Lord to be your helper and provider. For ancient Israel, it was prosperity that led to satisfaction, satisfaction that led to pride, pride that led them to forget the Lord who had given them the prosperity in the first place. That's a danger for us to be aware of. It's something which, for the ancient Israelites, was deadly. Throughout this chapter, we have some very confronting pictures of God's judgment. In verses 7 and 8, God compares himself to various wild animals that attack and destroy. And these pictures show that God is active in judgment. But probably the most horrific is the final verse in this chapter. And something funny has happened. Simon read what was listed this morning, but what was listed left it off the last verse of the chapter. Uh, I don't know if that was a mistake or someone made a decision. It wasn't my decision. The last verse of this chapter is a pretty horrendous verse. We read this verse and we may well ask quietly or loudly, is this God of judgment a God that I want to trust? Now, something we need to realise is that when verse 15 talks about an east wind from the Lord that will come, it's a way of speaking about the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army are coming to attack, to invade, to destroy, and they are instruments of God's judgement. The final sentences of our chapter are a pretty standard description of ancient warfare. This is the way wars were won in those days. Records of Assyrian victories spoke of burning young boys and girls. Archaeologists have discovered a song about the victories of an ancient Assyrian king from a few centuries before this. This Assyrian song celebrated the ripping open of pregnant women. God didn't invent this stuff. Human beings invented this stuff. The Assyrians were experts at it. Israel had been looking to the other nations as their source of security and survival. Sending them money, trying to form alliances, copying their leadership techniques, worshipping their gods. They'd looked to Assyria for security and survival. But in the end, what Assyria gave them was invasion and destruction. We see here that God's judgment is not random or arbitrary. The Bible says he is slow to anger. This chapter shows us that God's judgment is a reasonable response to the choices that people make. Israel chose the Assyrians. The Assyrians is what they got. I think the thing to be horrified by here is not God's judgment per se, but the self-destructive choices that lead to it. Choices that feature, to some extent, in all our lives. 
Is there any hope for these people that Hosea is speaking to? Your eye might be drawn to verse 14. In my Bible, I had this verse circled. It sounds quite a lot more positive than the rest of the chapter, doesn't it? If you're going to lift a verse out of context and sort of crochet it on a wall hanging, this is the verse you'd choose in this chapter, isn't it? I'm sorry to burst your bubble here, but actually the vast majority of scholars think verse 14 was written not as a word of hope. Sometimes in Hebrew, a sentence that looks like a statement is actually a question. There's not necessarily anything to mark out the difference. We do that a bit in English too. Uh, We could say, he's going to walk home, or we could say, he's going to walk home. Same words, can be a sentence, can be a question. Most scholars think that verse 14 actually starts with two rhetorical questions. Here are a few English translations that bring that out. On this understanding, God is saying, will I deliver them from the power of Sheol? Will I deliver them from death? And the implied answer in this chapter is no. The next two questions can be read as invitations. Where, O death, are your plagues? Bring them over here. Where, O grave, is your destruction? Bring it on. And this fits with the end of that verse where God says, I will have no compassion. So I would say that hope is not found in this chapter. It's not that kind of chapter. But praise the Lord, that hope is found in Jesus. God's judgment is real. It's reasonable. It's awful. But God's judgment is not the end of the story for the human race. It's not the end of the story because of what we sang about on Friday night. It's not the end of the story because of what we'll celebrate in all sorts of ways on the 25th of December. In Matthew's Gospel, when Matthew writes about Jesus' birth, he quotes from Hosea chapter 11, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew quotes that in relation to Jesus. Matthew is portraying Jesus as the new Israel. Israel rebooted, Israel 2.0. Jesus is the perfect Israel who didn't follow that dreadful path that we've seen described in Hosea 13. Jesus walked with God in perfect faithfulness. He never turned away from the Lord to put his trust in human political power. He never worshipped created things instead of the creator. He loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. He faithfully walked the narrow road that led to the cross, where he, the innocent one, willingly took on himself all the judgment that every other human being deserves. And because of his faithfulness, he emerged out the other side. He was raised to new life, eternal life, as the vindicated son of God. So now we can say, out of the grave God has called his son. And it's by aligning ourselves with Jesus that we can be safe from God's judgment. The writer Scott Sauls puts it beautifully when he says, in Jesus, our judgment day was moved from the future to the past. 
Jesus is the right place for us to go for security and survival. The New Testament doesn't erase the idea of God's judgment, but it shows us how God has made a way for us to be safe from his judgment. If your trust is in Jesus, if you've pledged your allegiance to him, then for you the future holds not judgment, but life. And this was the topic of our second reading today from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul speaks here of the day that we long for. The day when Christians are raised and transformed like Jesus. He says the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. And here's the thing, at the triumphant, life-giving return of Jesus, those questions from Hosea 13 will be transformed too. Those words, which were words of judgment, will now function as words of victory. Over the great defeated enemy of death, you and I will be able to gloat. Where, O oh death, is your victory? It's nowhere. Where, O oh death, is your sting? It's gone. We've seen today that God's judgment is real. That's awful. But I'm hoping that you've seen that what's most horrible of all is the choices we make to put ourselves under God's rightful judgment. So let's be looking out for those patterns in our lives so we can turn away from them and turn back to the Lord, our helper. And let's cling to Jesus who took on the sting of death for us, who's brought us through God's judgment to the other side. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.